I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Father Jeffrey Kirby, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining me in the, the Way of Beauty podcast. Yeah, thank you, David, thank you. It's, um, we're going to talk about your latest book, God's Search for Us, an enigmatic title, which we'll get to in a moment. I always thought that that's the other way around. I always thought I was searching. So, but that's the whole point, I think. Um, but before we get to that, perhaps just tell, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be writing such a book. And where, where are you sitting, for example? <laughs> exactly. I'm actually in my, uh, in my rectory at uh, Our Lady of Grace Parish, which is in Indian Land, South Carolina. So it's uh, actually a, a, a fairly new parish. It's only a little over two years old. So one of the newest parishes in the Southeast United States and uh, in the greater Charlotte area. So we're right on the border, Charlotte, North Carolina. We're right over the border. And so a lot of growth. So I'm sitting in my rectory. Uh, I'm the pastor here. And again, new parish with all the uh, joys and creativity that go with that. And um, in terms of my background, uh, I actually was in school as an, under, an under, as an undergrad, studied history. I went on to grad school for philosophy. I was thinking about law, but just always felt that kind of call, tug uh, towards the priesthood. So I went to seminary. I was able to study in Rome, which I mean, you know, it's the you know, capital of many things, including our faith and beauty in, in many respects. So basically, my whole formation of the priesthood was, was shaped by the foundation of philosophy. So uh, the importance of asking questions, trying to understand the depth of something. Uh, and so that has both shaped my thinking, my prayer, my preaching, my writing, which um, I think in the uh, contemporary era, people appreciate. And, uh, and that kind of approach. And I think that for myself, it's, it's just a given now. It's just how I was formed, it's how I think, it's how I approach the mysteries of God. And I think contemporary people appreciate that because they have questions and, and sometimes yes. maybe can reflect parts of their questions. So, so that's kind of a, a little bit of background uh, where I am, parish priest. Um, you know, I teach over at Belmont Abbey College, which is in Charlotte. And um, of course, periodically dirty a piece of paper with a pen and call it writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, wow, more than periodically, this is, a, I believe, your 10th book, is, is yeah, that right? Yeah. You've yeah. done several, so it is yeah. great. Um, and I'm curious, I, we're, we're from Pontifex University Press here, and I'm delighted that uh, you chose us. And really, I think, given that you have this track record, and we're a new publishing company, I would say it's you chose us as much as we chose you, <laughs> probably more. So I, I'm just curious why you... Uh, why you picked us, why you, you were happy to go with us, given that I'm sure you could have gone somewhere else as well. Well, well I, I uh, of course, uh, had taught a course uh, with, with Pontifex University and, and yeah. very much appreciate its mission, uh, which is, you know, one of sacred art, of theology. Um, you know, as Dostoevsky said, uh, it, it will be beauty that saves the world. And, and yes. I really believe, of course, uh, you know, we recently celebrated his, the 100th anniversary of his birth. And, and I really think that in his suffering and his own spirituality, he saw something uh, uh, in the contemporary world that he was able to then later bring to the West from his Russian background. But I, I do believe that, that there is a power of beauty. And, and Pontifex University, that's, you know, that's, 
you know, the, the vision. That that's what yes. the university is about. And and so this particular book, I just thought it matched that vision. It's a vision that, that I want to support because I think it's a it's, it's a vision that, that we need. And <laughs> you know, they say a, a dark age is, is now when the lights go out, but it's when the lights go out and no one notices, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I just get the sense that some of our lights are going out and a whole lot of people aren't noticing. And Pontifex University is. Uh, I think its its press is going to be a part of helping people to realize, hey, some of these lights are out and, and how we can uh, turn them back on. Not just in some raw retrieval for the past, but you know, to bring them back in, in a creative way, in, in a way that will resonate with contemporary people. So for all those reasons and that vision, um, I definitely... I wanted to be associated, wanted this book to be associated with Pontifex University. Well, we're delighted that it is, I have to say. Um, and I think your mention of turning the lights out and turning the lights on is a great segue into the, the, the subject of the book itself and the parable, which was really the inspiration for that title, God Search for Us. Perhaps if, if, before we get into the detail, you just summarize uh, what it's about who you think it might be for, and how they might use it uh, profitably. Yeah. So what, what is it about, first of all? Um, yes, yeah, and, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I hope that, you know, titles serve their purpose in giving, you know, at least one-liners, and, and I yes. hope that the title, God Search for Us, you know, kind of summarizes the, the main point, which is, you know, the contemporary person is, is focused, sometimes obsessed with my search for God, my search for meaning, my search, my search for myself. And, and oftentimes we can forget that, that that search only has substance or direction. It can even ever claim some type of conclusion because there was already a search going on. And, and of course, that is radical assertion of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's both from the Jewish and Christian tradition. They, long before we ever thought about searching for God or for ourselves or, or, or these contemporary expressions, God was searching for us. So the book really just takes that, uh, you know, that, 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 foundational belief that really created the West right? you know? and, and, and then develops that and it places it within the context of uh, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, the, the, the story of, of the woman who loses the coin. Now, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, that has the prodigal son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. And let me tell you, of the three, the lost coin always gets the shaft, right? <laughs> because everyone wants to focus on the prodigal son. It's very beautiful. Or the lost sheep. We love the, yes. you know, natural image of, of shepherd and sheep. But sometimes we can miss that very, I think, household example of this woman who lost a coin. And, and, and that parable has always resonated with me. I, I tell people, you know, I, I grew up in an uh, army family, and my mom was of the old school where she still did spring cleaning. So I can remember in the spring just this massive cleaning of the house where all the furniture was moved and everything was pulled up. And so, you know, and, and I can remember that. I remember in college that she would always save me for spring break because she thought, of course, I would want to be a part of it, right? And um, so this woman in Luke 15 uh, very much resonated with my experience. Uh, and I think it resonated with, can resonate with most people's experience you know, in terms of everyone has to clean their house. And, and, and oftentimes we lose something, a coin or a car keys or a credit card or whatever it might be. And this woman, of course, in the parable, loses her coin. She she sweeps the house. She lights a you know a, a candle. She, she 
earnestly is searching for this missing coin. She finds the coin, she rejoices, she invites her neighbors over, and she throws this huge party and probably spends far more than what the coin is originally worth. In fact, some exegetes would even say, biblical scholars would say that even lighting the candle and using the candle probably exhausted the cost of the coin itself, right? But there was wow. something that, yes, that this woman was yeah. searching for this coin. And it was so important that what was lost is found. And of course, the Lord tells us that story because he is encapsulating salvation history. I mean, he's describing the work of God throughout salvation history, of course, with Israel and then in himself, uh, God made man, that God is searching for us. So uh, God Search for Us, the book, is, is developing these themes and, and this focus. And, you know, some of it is, is uh, very spiritual in terms of you know, trying to understand, finding you know, the mystery of God, the triune God in our own souls, and some is very mm. practical, like recognizing that the magisterium speaks on God's behalf, and God continues that work of search through even uh, the magisterium today, the teaching office of the church. So all across the board, but beginning and, and grounded on that parable of Luke 15, of that missing coin, and that assertion, God searching for us. Right, and the first point that struck me, and I mentioned that earlier on, is that it inverts what I would have thought, that, uh, that it's, the woman is God. It's not me. It's not because I'm a person of the age, the age that you're describing who assumes that I'm reaching out for God, uh, and so that I'm being encouraged to keep searching and keep looking and keep knocking. And so I'm, I'm sure there's an aspect of that too, but it, it turns it around. This is God searching for us. And this um, really, uh, I, I'm struck also by, in your description, you, you, you have five main points that you make, or you categorize them as five. And um, as you said, they in a way, follow salvation history, and there's the, uh, the ministry, there's the setting up of the church, and then there's the celebration. And I love that, because then you say, this is the, this is the, the end of the story, but it's the source and summit of our, our lives. It's, it's the liturgy. Um, yes. And so this dynamic is, is so important, I think. I don't know if you just want to comment further on that and the place of the liturgy in this and how this book might help us in our worship, for example. Yeah, so we can go back to the woman that, that you know, she invites friends to celebrate. So she has this good news. She found this mission yes. point. She invites friends and of course there's a celebration. And, and uh, in, in the book I developed that, that by calling friends, this is the calling of the church and believers um, you know, into Christ. And then the celebration, which is the Eucharist that you know, that God is calling us to eat with him. I, you know, even just culturally in the ancient world, I think it's so powerful because, you know, of course, especially in ancient Israel, uh, only friends, very dear friends, and family ate at the table. Uh, foreigners or extended fa uh, fa uh, friends or business partners ate outside. I think it's interesting when God appeared to Abraham, he had them eat outside because he didn't know them. And, and, of course, it turned out to be God. Um, but whoever is invited to the table... Uh, is an intimate, someone who is trusted. And, and here, the celebration that Christ is offering us as he calls his friends to him, calls us to himself, uh, he offers us and invites us to sit at the table and to celebrate. Of course, that's the Eucharist. and becomes a summit and source. And that, I think, uh, is the beginning of our search for God. But really, we're just integrating what he's already done in our lives. Like, 
you know, we, we can say more broadly that the entire story of salvation is not whether or not God loves us. <laughs> the story of salvation is whether we're reciprocating his love, whether we're giving him that love back, whether we're loving him. And I think that um, the story of the Eucharist is, is very much that, that even the Mass itself is missiological. I mean, mass, like, misa asks, go. Like, you know, there, there's a sense of mission even within uh, the name of our worship. So I just think there's so much there that as, as Catholics, as Westerners, we just take for granted, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they such a, a source of energy and, and rejuvenation, uh, inspiration, uh, and, and, and the book, this book tries in some small way to, to reveal again some of these treasures. I'm curious, as, and it's fascinating, I, I, and I'd never thought of this, the power of this parable to speak of my life, of course, and then my life as a participation in salvation history and how in microcosm I follow that journey within the grand journey of the human race. And this is something that I, I, I converted 25 years ago and I went through a pretty thorough catechism. I was with the, I was with the, at the London Oratory and a good instruction, but these riches are just coming to, a lot of this understanding of scripture is coming to me recently, actually through contact with people like you, who are teaching mm. these courses at Pontifex University. Oh, yeah. I just think, I thought I was doing pretty well, and I wasn't grasping the, the depths of this and the importance of Scripture. And so I'm very excited that this is coming out. It, it happens to coincide with where I am in terms of my sort of study and journey at the moment. So that's, that's my enthusiasm for it. What's, what struck me, there's a, there's a couple of things. So immediately I made this connection with what I'd read I think it's in Deus Caritas S, Benedict XVI's encyclical, where he makes this point. He talks about a dynamic, which he calls agape and eros, the self-giving, and then the ordered reception. And he makes the point that there can be no gift unless someone receives it. <laughs> it sounds obvious, but I never even thought about it. And, and, and he says we cannot love anybody, even the, the hard-bitten atheist, and who loves, and some of them do, do not do so except that to some degree they've accepted the love of God. We, we, can't, we can't do it. And yeah. Now, what I'm curious about is where does this discussion come from? Is this something that you've learned in Scripture, these ideas you've developed yourself? Um, yeah. Are you drawing this together? I'm just very curious about that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, no, thank you. And... and, and you know, I, I think there's a, a depth, I think it's being rediscovered more and more in terms of the uh, patristic uh, interpretation yes. of scriptures. Um, you know, we had Racehorse Mont, uh, you know, just a little over 50 years ago, and, and, and this kind of retrieval of um, these beautiful patristic sources. So I think that that's how the fathers of the church approached so much of this. And, and in part, uh, while, of course, within the own, our own Christian tradition, but of course, uh, this kind of retrieval of uh, Old Testament exegesis, so um, rabbinic exegesis uh, on, on what we call the Old Testament, uh, which I think is, is, is very rich. I think it's very interesting. Uh, Jean-Daniel Lou said that the entire New Testament is the Lexio Divina of the Old Testament, right? Right. Okay. How you know, it's beautiful that this kind of eating and reflecting and, and on the Old Testament is what gave birth to uh, this, this New Testament. So, so I think the, the patristic read 
uh, was certainly very helpful. But also, it's very interesting because uh, this is a, a, a trend in contemporary Jewish theology or Jewish spirituality. So Jewish. Uh, Yes, so, right. uh, Rabbi is it Herschel? Herschel uh, wrote a book. It's actually called uh, "God's Search for Man." You know, which uh, I read several years ago, and I thought this this is very rich. So when I stress that this is a Judeo-Christian concept, like I, I don't want us to forget that uh, you know th this is something that was held by uh, and and is held by uh, Jewish believers as well. Of course, it takes on a radically different form for the Christian because you know, God became man. Uh, the, the searching continued. So I would say both by the patristic sources and by uh, older um, and rabbinic sources and, and even contemporary uh, Jewish spirituality. This notion of, of God is searching for Israel. Uh, Israel has, has been given the law. It's, it's a lamp uh, to Israel's feet, and yet Israel is stumbling and, and being lost. And so God is searching for Israel. And I think that just, again, takes on a very powerful uh, um, manifestation, a powerful fulfillment uh, in the Christian message. And, and the early fathers saw that too, maybe because they were so close to the original uh, rabbinic interpretation that they saw this as, as, as you know, applied to God's search for us. And, and, and I would argue, you know, so in terms of my own resources and, and, and approach to this, but I would argue that once... I had that concept, or at least that awareness, that when I went back to the text, uh, to Luke 15, it was so clear <laughs> that what the Lord was doing, that, that you know, in, in this very brief parable, he was summarizing, encapsulating the whole salvation history. In fact, uh, it could be argued that all of Luke 15, he's responding to the Pharisees, that what initiates Luke 15, even the story of the prodigal son, like, has on, can be argued, as, as the patristics understood it, this summary of salvation history that, you know, God the Father had two sons, Israel and the Gentiles. The Gentiles refused to obey. You know, they left him. You know, they took the inheritance. Uh, you know, they, they dwelt among pigs, of course, the unclean, and, and so on. But Israel was faithful, you know, mm. uh, God. And, and, you know, this parable seen in this perspective is Jesus teaching uh, the Jewish people of his day teaching Israel, that the Gentiles are coming home, you know? So if we put it in that context, and then suddenly we get this woman looking for this coin, we realize this is God's search, you know, for the human family, you know? And uh, one could argue not simply the Gentiles, but, but all of humanity. So there, there's just a lot there, but um, as so oftentimes happens in, in the tradition is we have these things, <laughs> and, and, yes. and we kind of go in one direction, you know, for a couple hundred years or something, and then we realize, oh, you know, and, and then we go back and we retrieve, sometimes creatively, which is good, yes, yes, these, these ideas and these concepts and this understanding and, and begin to realize, wow, this contemporary uh, struggle, my search for God, my search for meaning, search for myself, how can we respond? But once we go back to the tradition, we realize, well, we already have the response, right? <laughs> it's actually very rich and deep and beautiful and inspiring that, yes, yes, search for God. Search for, for, for the meaning of your life. Search even for yourself, certainly, for sure. But how about this? Before you were searching for this, there was already else someone searching for you who loves you and wants to give you all, of your, all that your heart desires, love, acceptance, mercy, uh, purpose and so on, right? 
that that's a huge, I think, shift um, that our tradition can offer to anyone. Yes, it, I, that's inspiring, uh, wonderful. Um, there's a couple of things as you were talking. First of all, just a small point. You, you referred to the creative retrieval. I, I think that is what we have to do across the board in so many areas um, in the West. So uh, it's what you, what you seem to be describing there is a rediscovery of the tradition. That's the retrieval, if you like. But then it has to be, it has to speak to people today as well. And we have to understand it in the light of what we've learned since. So the, the other things that we know and we learn, even the, the sort of historical analysis, which in many ways has, been, has not been a great thing, um, has not been used well in scripture. But nevertheless, it, it, there are valuable lessons there that allow us to speak to people today. And that really brings me to the, to the point that um, we, we see right in the opening of the book, you say this message is needed today in Western culture. Uh, yeah. Could you just uh, talk about that a little bit? What, 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 why do you feel that this is so important today? Um, yes. Not just because it's part of the tradition, but it, we, we need this today especially. Yes, yes. I, I want to get uh, to that. And I, I want to uh, just address what you were saying about the difference between retrieval and creative retrieval. And I, I just okay. To, because if, if we just have retrieval, yes. take something from the past in a different culture at a different time, and we try to impose it on faith today, right, or on culture today, which some people yeah. are trying, you know, I, I think quite disastrously, uh, for the faith and for yeah. culture. And, yeah, I agree. You know, Alice the Twelfth, you know, uh, he spoke about this, and he actually described that as primitivism. The only oh. denied it. The only says no. Like when we go back to steward, as the Lord says, the, the wise steward draws from the old and the new. You know, we, we bring both from the storehouse in order uh, to to serve the gospel, in order to present, you know, the good news uh, to humanity. So, so with that said, in sense of why can this message? Why why do I think that this message can be so timely? And, and it's so needed today, is, well, let's look at what the good news did 2,000 years ago, right? So we have the ancient uh, worldview, which was predominantly Greek. So the Greek worldview at that time was very much uh, marked by pessimism and despair. Why? Well, of course you're going to be pessimistic and have despair because you had absolutely no control over anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, the gods were really just, superhuman beings. I mean, Zeus was Father God, not because he was a paternal figure. He was Father God because he literally generated all the other gods, right, by his uh, promiscuity. So, I mean, we have a very different understanding of reality in the Greek mind, right? Uh, humanity are playfuls or they're victims. The, the, the gods would, would cause wars because they were bored or because they had their uh, vanity somehow hurt or their ego bruised. And so on. So, so this is this whole view that, that you know the, the gods were really just superhuman, very fallen, sinful beings, and that was you just take that all the way and, and, and just run with it. I mean, you know, in the Greek mind, love right, was one of the lesser gods, and love, this lesser god, was the bastard child of the god need and the god poverty who basically got drunk after a party, the myth goes, and conceived love. So 
Love is nothing but need and poverty, right? And so imagine that or the notion of freedom. There's no freedom. There's no freedom. Like, no, the gods decided we just have to go along. We hope that we don't upset them. We hope that they don't inflict their punishment upon us. We hope they don't come rape our wives and daughters. And you know, this whole view, just very dark and pessimistic. Well, in the midst of that, what, 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 what do the apostles do? What does Jesus Christ offer to humanity? Well, the good news, and, and, and it is news. Right? We have to you know, realize that this is news, like we're proclaiming news. And it's good news that God is love. What? Mm. No, love is weakness. Love is poverty. Like, no, what? Like, and, and, and we're free. For freedom, Christ has set us free, right? We have the power to actually make a difference. We have the power to exercise virtue. We have the power to be instruments of goodness, right? And this view that God was searching for us, and this benevolent God, he's one, he's good, he seeks fellowship with us, and he's seeking us out not to harm us or rape us or hurt us, He's seeking us, because, seeking us out because he sincerely wants to have fellowship with us, and he's seeking to allow that good that is a reflection of him to grow and shine within us. Well, just imagine, just as I'm describing this, just the, the radical uh, uh, turning over of, of this Greek mindset and what that does to the human soul, that sense of, of liberty, of self-empowerment, we'd say today, uh, this sense of creativity. And we know that it resonated with the human mind because of the rapid spread of the Christian faith. <laughs> you know, people are like, that's a really good message. <laughs> you know I mean? like, I will, I'll follow a God like that, right? Mm. And, of course, we see that joy, especially Luke. I mean, Luke was the only non-Jewish author of the New Testament. He's not, care, he's not as concerned uh, with the ceremonial law or the prophecies of Israel. Uh, he mentions them, of course, and so on, but he's not interested. Uh, he's a Gentile, not as the other evangelists were. He's concerned in his story, in, in his recount of, of the gospel message, uh, that Jesus Christ is understood as the righteous God, the righteous Savior. That's why only Luke, only Luke tells us about the prodigal son, the good thief, the good Samaritan, Martha and Mary. Only Luke tells us these stories because he's specifically addressing this pagan mind, right? Mm. Deterministic pathetic, pantheistic, dark, right? And regrettably, David, I would look at the world today and I'd say deterministic, pathetic, pantheistic, dark, right? You know, different ways. I mean, you know, God bless the ancient Greeks. At least they, you know, ripped out the, uh, you know, the innards of chickens and, and tried to discern the world gods. You know, now we have secularists who just buy frozen chicken at grocery stores. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's no sense of transcendence. Yeah. Um, but while well, so while different in, in cultural context, uh, the spirit's the same. There are a lot of people who, as much as the West and America can brag and take pride in freedom, there are a lot of people who believe that they're not free. I am the consequence of my history. I am the sum total of my sin or my parents' sin. I am the result, the raw result of my socioeconomic status. And the list goes on. I am not free, right? Well, yes. in the world, that was because of pagan gods. Now it's because of these other pseudo-gods we've created, right? So I think now more than ever, the good news needs to be unleashed. Uh, it's been domesticated. We turned a lion into a little kitten, right? And, and the good news wants to be um, set free. And, yes. and, and longer, uh, domesticated. Uh, the lion wants to roar. 
And I think it begins by that proclamation of love. So, for example, earlier you quoted um, Deus Cartas S. Uh, you know, <laughs> after Benedict was elected, everyone thought, oh, he's going to, like, you know, just bring down a hammer and, you know, all these, you know, false stories and accounts of him. And, of course, what was his first encyclical was, which you just quoted, Deus Cartas S, like Latin for God is love. I mean, yes. this man who saw it, and, and I hope that in some small way I can imitate what he did, which is to once again reannounce the radical core belief of the good news. God is love. God is searching for you. God desires mm. fellowship. God is good, and he will take nothing that is good from you. And the good that he is offered, he will perfect and give back to you tenfold. Like, that's a liberating message. It saved the ancient world. It created what we now call Western civilization to the degree yes. that that's And I am of the strong opinion that if we unleash this message again, it can do the exact same thing in a different way, in a way that will resonate with people today, but it will have the exact same results. It will edify human dignity. It will allow the common good to flourish. It will allow for a rebirth mm -hmm. of creativity within the human family. I, I agree. And, uh, amen to that. Um, I, the, the, the one thing that occurs, I've got a, um, an answer to this question that, that I think would work, but the one response to that would be, that's fantastic. But the people who are going to be reading this book probably already to a, de to a degree believe this. How does it, this message get transmitted from those who read it to the wider world? How do we see that happening? Um, so yeah. I'm going to come in with what I think after, after you speak, because I've got some ideas, because this is what I'm enthusiastic about. And you mentioned the mission of Pontifex. I think this is what we're all about. But yeah, please speak to that as well in, in your own way. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I can take it in, in, in two ways, uh, yes. ad intra and then ab extra. So, uh, you know, two within, so the, the, the ab intra, which is uh, I wished, and, and I, I, I really wish I was wrong, but all the Pew surveys support this, that I wish that our own right, were on board. Yes. So, and, and even the people who are reading this book, like, you know, um, when someone say, well, okay, you're not just talking about everyone who's in the pew. I mean, obviously, if someone's going to buy this book that, that's perhaps one step above, they're one step more interested, uh, perhaps, I hope, right? But I just realized more and more, as Pope St. John Paul II called it, the new evangelization, that I think we have a lot of work to do in-house. Yes. Even just the summary of the gospel I just gave, like there are a lot of believers who live, think, feel, act as unbelievers. And they don't even realize it. Like they think they're good Christians. <laughs> and, and they just don't understand in terms of, you know, mercy or service to the poor, um, this understanding of, of, of kindness, uh, you know, this uh, sense of and proclamation of freedom. And so on. So I think first and foremost, like we have a lot of work to do within our own. So, uh, this new evangelization. You know, I think it's interesting that in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the English version was, was released in 94, um, it speaks about um, the need for a post-baptismal catechumenate. Now, first read, say, okay, whatever. You know, but wait, 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 let's back it up. Uh, catechumenate, that's how a pagan becomes a Christian. Right? So the process of the catechumenate would in some English-speaking countries, the United States, and so on, we call the RCIA, right? Right of yeah. Christian Catechumenate. 
So if the catechism is saying we need a post-baptismal, so after the baptism, catechumenate, right? Well, I think that's about the best and kindest way theologically you can call someone a baptized pagan, right? You know, <laughs> also, you know so even in, in the catechism, it recognizes that we have a lot of work to do in-house. Yes. I'd say first and foremost, like, uh, you know, so even our own, and even those that are more involved, like, uh, I think we, we have to, uh, we have to get some work there, you know, so, and then, and then more to your question, which is now we go out, how do we get it out there? Well, I think that, you know, beauty will save the world. I think we proclaim the beauty of, of Jesus Christ, the beauty of a God that forgives, the beauty of a God of second chances, uh, the beauty of a God who uh, will go into the trenches and to the periphery, who will serve the poor. Uh, who is not disgusted or appalled uh, by sin or uh, by poverty or illness. I, I think the same thing that inspired the ancient pagans, you know, about Jesus Christ can be just as inspiring today because you know, we, we all have had our uh, dark moments or our difficult moments or our sick moments. And to know that there is a God who will not abandon us or hurt us or harm us or, uh, but a God who is one, a God who is love, and a God that will be with us, especially when we are sinful or sick or poor. I think it's a radical message. I think that's the message. So I, I think that the more we proclaim that and express that, whether it's through music, through art, through uh, you know, uh, cyber uh, connections, uh, I think the more we can do that, the more we can proclaim the beauty of Jesus Christ, uh, I think the more we will find that people give us a greater listening. Yes, I the parallel with with what I do. I, I'm interested particularly in art and the, the uh, culture, but visual art. But I, what you describe is really exactly what I feel. Who's going to go to Pontifex University for an art course? It's it's going to be people who are interested in Catholic art. It, it, there will be some others, I think, in time. We do get one or two. But um, what this is an education for the for the creators, it's for those who then are going to go out into the world and have an impact. Yeah. Um, I was struck in your description by the phrase, the God of second chances. I've never heard that before. <laughs> and I, I'm a convert. And uh, in my case, it's more than a second chance. I mean, it's, it's week after week, <laughs> confession oh after confession. And, um, and, some, and I was shown... Um, I wrote, this is what I wrote about in my book, The Vision for You, actually, this, this very, very rigorous and systematic way of consultation of conscious, conscience. Even before I became Catholic, it, it, this guy I met called David convinced me that I, to do this. Now, how do you do this? One, he, he said, well, if you make this connection with God, even though you're an atheist, I think you can do this if you reach out and I realized now he was using the language that you were he was a he was a Catholic he never told me this um, and he made me believe that if I did this I could be an artist this is what I was doing. but deep down I felt also that in doing this I would be free from my old life and I would have a happy life and it's about happiness and some people have said to me, don't you think that this is so, you're in danger of getting so caught up in sin and negativity, and that's a problem today. I, I, my response is no, 
we, we, that, that's not the, pro- the problem. The problem is that we doubt God's love and mercy. The, the more we acknowledge our sin, the greater the freedom is my experience. Yes. But the, the, the great message that this guy David transmitted to me, and I realized that now that he was the classic new evangelist, was I believed that this happy life was an offer and God loved me and wanted me to be happy if only I could cooperate with that extended hand of theirs. So the actions he gave me, I understood as a way of reaching out and, and taking that hand that was already out there on offer to, to draw me upwards. Um, and this is about happiness. And the one condition um, that da- this guy David uh, gave, in, if, that in, uh, if he would show me this, he just did this for free, was that if, um, if it worked, that I would be prepared to pass this on to other people. And he said, one, I want this to spread anyway, but he said, here's the catch, here's the paradox, everything you get, you'll lose unless you pass it on to other people. <laughs> it's destroyed, you can't grasp, we accept it, then we... We, we offer that hand to others, and then people will accept it from us. Um, so I just, I, I'm just sort of thinking about all of this as you speak. Um, he, my friend David died of a heart attack. He was an older gentleman. And he died of a heart attack in his 70s, 20 years ago now. And um, I've always thought that my goal is to emulate what he did i think 600 people came to his funeral um when he died from all over the place who he'd helped in this he just had a knack for doing this and so in some way i made my life mission to try i just think the example that he gave me and the change that he gave my life and the thing that struck me also is that when i came into the church um so this was about five years after i first met this, this guy david he was my catholic sponsor he eventually re- revealed himself as a catholic <laughs> and sort of direct, he directed me to the brompton oratory um but uh i got into the catholic church and i realized that although from in my own ex- um case this was the consummation of everything i've been searching for i realized it um not a lot of Catholics seem to know this. <laughs> they didn't know what they had. And I, I was coming, aren't you aware? And David always used that phrase, the pearl of great price. You, know, this is, you don't know what you've got here. Yes. Um, so so I, before I go, I mean, I've been doing this. Have you got any reactions to that or any thoughts? Yes. And, and, and I think that, that that's a powerful story. I mean, that's, you know, we can see in terms of the apostles being so shaped by the life of the Lord and yeah. or by St. Paul, by his encounter with Christ. And, and then, you know, later that, you know, these apostles, they we would go and they inspired other people. So uh, Luke, I mean, we're, you know, we're drawing this uh, parable from his gospel. Like Luke never met the Lord in this life. Right? You know, and, and Luke only knew about Jesus because of the testimony of others and the witness of others. And I think that the more we know, the more we are free, the more we are free, the more we're virtuous, the more we're holy, the yeah. more the Holy Spirit can work in us and through us. And I think that as we do that, like, uh, we will be witnesses, and the Lord will put us in places where we are most needed. I mean, uh, I, I appreciate in, in Matthew's gospel, the Lord uh, very much in the center on the Mount develops, you know, that, that we are called to be salt, light, 
and leaven. Well, you know, in one sense, it's like, wow, we've gotten used to that. It's very inspiring. But, but then you kind of just step back and say, well, the initial listeners, you know, or, or if we think critically for a minute, so with me, you put salt on things that are, 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 are tasteless. You bring light where there's darkness. Like you, you bring leaven where something is flat, right? So in one sense, it's an assessment of the fallenness of the world. But more specifically is if we're called to be salt, light, and leaven, it means we have to go out to the young atheist or the young person who's searching for meaning or the person who has abandoned the church, or the person who is an, is an obstinate form or something. And if we're not among the things that are tasteless and flat and dark, then we're not fulfilling the mission given to us. Because how can we be salt, light, and leaven if we're not in these areas, right? So I think what you experienced from your friend, I think that we all should experience. So as one uh, spiritual writer would say, we all should have a St. Paul, and we should all have a St. Timothy. Right. Okay. Well, right. The one who is mentoring us, but also the one that we are mentoring, and and I think that it very much is in, in the New Testament. We see that in Acts of the Apostles, and very much within the life of the church, we see reflected, especially in the lives of the saints. Hmm. So the the question then, and uh, is even I can understand all that you're describing intellectually, mm-hmm. and how do I grasp this? And it's I always reminded of when people say you know offer something up and, and i get frustrated what do i do how do, how, how do i do you know i can't make myself sort of change I, I like action i'm not great in just sort of changing my emotions but um what occur- this is something that occurred to me um that i uh have done my best to, to develop as part of my a daily routine really a bit a bit of lexio divina so meditation um, on something, and it might be visual. So I don't know whether you call that conspexio or something, but uh, aspects of uh, the, the word with a capital W from scripture or uh, in, vis- in paintings that lead then to contemplative prayer where you think about it. And this is the technique of Lexio Divina. And I, I've been uh, taught this a little bit as best as I can understand by uh, Benedictines, and I've read about this in the uh, Rule of St. Benedict, but it strikes me that um, in doing this, something like this on a regular basis, what it's doing then is developing within us that faculty to accept and give love yes. through the interaction with the text, because it is both um, active and meditating and receptive in an alert way. I'm sitting, uh, allowing God to speak to me. And the value of that is anything that comes out of it. But also, then, when I go into the, the Eucharist, when I go to the Mass, yes. then, it, in ways that I don't understand, or probably I'm not even aware, aware of, my hope is that I can then enter more deeply into that mystery and, and enter into the mystery of the Trinity. And that is the, the hope, is that supernatural transformation by which we partake of the divine nature and then become, despite ourselves, the person you're describing. Um, and I wonder if you've got any thoughts to help people where they might go to discover the art of meditation and contemplation. Yeah, yeah. You've written books on prayer. so yeah. well, Even as you were just talking about that, I, I'm, I'm just getting... Um excited because I, I, you know, I think it's so important that we, we understand uh, the sacred teacher 
but then we bring it into our life. And this is a God who became a man. So if, if we leave heavenly wisdom into, in the heavens, then we, we, we've missed mm. a part of the commission. We've missed a, a part of the opportunity that, that's been given to us. And, and I think first, very much, David, what you were describing in terms of, you know, as we draw closer to God, uh, we do see things. You know, St. Paul says to the Ephesians, open the eyes of your heart. He commands that, right? And it's like, eyes of our heart, what's he talking about, right? Well, it's, it's, it's when we draw closer to God in prayer, when we understand uh, his ways, his pedagogy, the way he teaches mm. us, and so on, that, that the more we do that, right, the more we can see his divine providence, like the more the eyes of our heart are opened. Right? So with that understanding, what I like to do is, is something that, that profoundly uh, inspired me was in one reflection that Pope Benedict XVI gave uh, on St. Paul. He says that when, when the Lord appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't simply appear, like, you know, knock Paul down and appear to him. And it, it, it wasn't simply that. Uh, Benedict goes on to say that, that when Paul was knocked down, that Jesus revealed to Paul and relived in Paul his passion, death, and resurrection. Right? So Paul, in this moment, was given the Paschal mystery, which is why he would then go on to Damascus God would send Ananias to him, and of course he would receive baptism because baptism is now sacramentally doing what mystically had already been given to Paul, that this past and death and resurrection. So, so with that on a broader scale, I think that each of us as believers, we have to re- retrieve the, the, this understanding that God's searching for us, we're searching for him. But also, you know, as we're searching for him, like God is revealing to us constantly his past and death and resurrection. And, and we have to allow his passion, death, and resurrection, his Paschal mystery, to be relived in us every day, right? So I'm scared about something. It's the passion. I die to myself. I, I, I seek a greater good. I don't like someone. I don't like their personality, their temperament. I die to myself, the passion. I die. And then, of course, the resurrection. So there's this constant passion and death and resurrection happening in the life of a Christian believer every day. Now, that understanding, more to your uh, question, and, and in terms of the practical application, is how do we do that? Right? And, and I think first and foremost, well, uh, we have to be with the one who seeks us, and whatever prayer form it might be, uh, I, I think that if it starts with more of formal prayer, like the Rosary or Divine Mercy Chapter, the time with God, I also think that if people are away from the sacraments, I mean, the, <laughs> The sacraments are these radical mysteries of God, these, these encounters, intimate encounters with God. So if someone has been to confession in a while, like that has to be a part of this, right, at the beginning. Mm. So I think the sacraments, I think some type of prayer, I think eventually like Lexio Divina or there's, you know, when I hear that people have left the Christian faith because they've gone to Buddhism or something, um, because they're looking for prayer or things of that sort, like, uh, it grieves me because we have this vast treasury mm-hmm. within the yeah. uh, Christian patrimony, you know, from uh, Lexia Divina to Pustinia in, in the Christian Russian tradition. We have a composition of place, a uh, prayer form. We have, uh, th- there's all these, these beautiful prayer forms that we have that can help us draw closer to God. And I think that uh, we have so many, by the way, because we have different temperaments. So I think that, you know, to think that one prayer form is going to be okay. uh, yeah. that for everyone. Like, so I, I think the, the sacraments, the, the, the prayer, and then I think just in our everyday, to see the opportunities of our life 
You know, I'd rather not talk to that person. They're really annoying. Uh, I died of myself. There's the passion, there's the death, and the resurrection, which is charity. Right? Uh, the passion and death, and there's the resurrection of patience. Right? And, and I think the more we see that, the more we can understand what it is Christ wants to do in us. And imagine the person who does that in their everyday life, and then they go to Sunday worship. And there they see mystically, sacramentally, the very reality that they've been living 24-7. Suddenly, it's not, I have to go to Mass, it's, I need to get to Mass. I need to take the, these experiences of the passion, death, and resurrection, I need to take them to the source, to the font, to the summit, and, and I need to place these there and be rejuvenated and healed and inspired, right? And there's the connection that... I think the early church understood between the Eucharist, you know, and uh, daily life. I'll, I'll, I'll mention this: like Luke twenty-four, the, the the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's oftentimes argued that Luke intended that this is this kind of interesting conclusion to his gospel. That Luke intended that to be a type of catechesis of the Christian way of life. Uh, one uh, uh, school even argued that the um, story of the two disciples was actually a disguised retelling of the liturgy that the lord walks with us in our journey of faith that he then teaches us the scriptures he then invites us he then reveals himself in the breaking of the bread he then calls us to community and calls us to proclamation mm -hmm. you know that this whole the story itself was to recount the christian way of life and specifically the liturgical life just to show again that connection between what i do in my life you know, the hustle yes. and what is done at the altar should be one. Yes, that is wonderful. I think we'll stop there. This has been just a, a wonderful conversation. So people can get the book on Amazon, uh, yes. Father Jeffrey Kirby, uh, God's Search for Us, um, and I'll put links up on the on the podcast as well. Um, just um, any other uh, closing remarks you wish to make about. Um, where people can get hold of you, or do you have a website or anything like that? At all? Yes, yes, yes. I'm on Twitter, uh, Father Kirby, or my website, frkirby.com. And, um, and of course, the other books, you, you know, there are a few out there that I think develop or stress parts of these, this message in other ways. So uh, any of those, yeah. So. Yes, and we'd recommend all the, not just the Pontifex University <laughs> Press book. Uh, Father Kirby, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Likewise. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.